Now take your copy of God's Word and open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35 through 49. I'd love to spend all morning in 1 Corinthians 15, but some of us have small groups to get to and lunch eventually also. Uh, Unless you want to stay for several hours, I'm happy to do the same. No takers, okay. Um, Before we um, uh, dive into uh, the last in this series of sermons on God's wonderful work of salvation, uh, uh, allow me just a moment to speak clearly uh, where maybe I didn't speak as clearly as I ought to have last week. Last week we talked about sanctification as an aspect of our salvation or an outworking uh, or an effect of our salvation. Sanctification, that, that lifelong process of rejecting sin and turning and trusting in God. Uh, even sanctification, friends, is God's work in us. Uh, that is not a thing that we, we are not saved as we pursue sanctification. We pursue sanctification because we are saved. So if I was not clear uh, last week about the importance of, of salvation prior to sanctification, let me be clear now. We do not pursue lives of holiness in order to be saved. We pursue lives of holiness because we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Well, we started uh, this series several weeks ago in Romans chapter 8. You may remember that. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul says in uh, verses um, uh, 28 through 31, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we have spent several weeks looking at these different aspects of our salvation, of the salvation that God works in us. We started with election or predestination, this aspect of our salvation that is rooted in eternity past, in the mind and the heart of God who determined to love sinners, to be saved uh, by his grace to himself. We, we saw aspect of our atonement that, that, that what achieves, or excuse me, what achieves our salvation, which is atonement, Christ's death on the cross for sins. Not something that takes place in eternity past, but something that took place in time in history when Jesus died for sins. We looked at the aspect of our salvation that we call calling, the way that God brings people to himself through the influence of the Holy Spirit and through the preaching of the gospel. This is an historical sort of uh, located event, but it's different for every person, right? Because we don't all live forever. We all have different you know, ways that God calls us to the gospel. We saw the aspect of conversion, faith and repentance. Uh, everyone who is saved by God's grace at some point trusts Christ for salvation and turns from their sin. We saw that wonderful uh, doctrine of our salvation called justification, the way by which God declares that we are in right standing with him because Christ died for our sins. Our, uh, uh, our relationship with God is renewed and set right. We saw a few weeks ago that, that part of our salvation we call adoption, being adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. And last week we looked at that ongoing process of, of working out our salvation, putting our salvation to work as we are sanctified, as we pursue holy living and following Jesus. And this week, we look at the final aspect of our salvation called glorification. It's how Paul ends that golden chain of salvation in Romans chapter 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
glorification, even though Paul speaks about it in the past tense, is something that we are looking forward to. Glorification, this is our main idea this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, that glorification is the final completion of our salvation when Christians, those who are in Christ by faith, are raised from the dead in incorruptible bodies to live forever in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Those whom he called, predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul speaks about it in the past tense because even though it's a future, a future reality, he speaks about it in the past or the completed sense because it is, it is sure to take place. But glorification is this, the, the last part of our salvation. When Christians will be raised from the dead in incorruptible bodies to live forever in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Coming to see this reality presented to us in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning, we must, in light of the reality of our future glorification, we must place our hope, that is our confident expectation for the future, place our hope squarely in Christ who raises believers to incorruptible and unending life with Him. In light of the the reality of our coming glorification, we must put our hope in Christ who raises us from the dead. So would you join me in standing as we honor God by reading his word? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 49. The Apostle Paul, carried along in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words to the church at Corinth. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they, with what, uh, with what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from Uh, star in glory so it is with the resurrection of the dead what is sown is perishable what is raised is imperishable it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body if there is a natural body there is also a spiritual body thus it is written the first man adam became a living being the last adam became a life-giving spirit But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Praise God for his word. You may be seated. Glorification. The final completion of our salvation. That's not to say that our salvation is somehow insecure today for trusting Christ, but the the outworking of our salvation will come to completion at the end when Christ raises the dead in him to new life forever. As we come into uh, 1 Corinthians 15, just like we were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 last week, we're kind of parachuting into uh, a passage that that has some broader context. And the broader context of Paul's reminder to the Corinthians uh, here in 1 Corinthians 15 is is in a broader reminder of what the gospel is. 
If you go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, you have Paul saying these words to the church. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand by, which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The context of 1 Corinthians 15 is a reminder of the gospel that Paul preached to the Corinthians, the gospel that they believed, and the gospel that has saved them. That is the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised from the dead three days later according to the scriptures and that he appeared to many people even after his resurrection until the day when he ascended to the right hand of the father and in the meantime those who have come to salvation who have had their lives and souls renewed to right relationship with god are awaiting a day of final resurrection when, when Christ will bring our physical bodies to match the state of our souls with him, that is perfectly incorruptible, sinless, he will raise us from the dead to live with him forever. Now, some in the Corinthian church had begun to question how it was that Christ was raised from the dead. What sort of body was he raised with? And this question about how Christ was raised led to a, a question or even a doubting among the church in Corinth. As you read 1 Corinthians 15, you can see this. A doubt among the church in Corinth that Christ had been raised at all. If we can't answer definitively how Christ was raised, can we even say that he was raised, the church was saying? Well, not only has Christ been raised from the dead, Paul reminds them, but he says even more sternly in the verses or more clearly in the verses that precede our passage today, that if Christ had not been raised physically, bodily, from the grave, that all of the Christians in the church at Corinth should stop believing immediately. If Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. It's pointless. All of our hope for salvation comes, exists because Christ was raised bodily from the dead. So if he hasn't been raised, friends, don't trust him. But Paul says with equal confidence, Christ has been raised. So, Here's what we can look forward to, he says to the church. And he begins to answer this question for the church of uh, uh, having demonstrated how Christ was raised physically, bodily from the dead. Now he begins to teach the church how they will be raised in the resurrection as well. And that's the first question that our passage raises this morning. How will believers, how will Christians be raised from the dead? How will we be glorified? Well, giving away the first part of the answer to that question. How will believers be raised? First of all, in glory. Paul says, uh, relates to us in verses 35 through 41, he gives to us an analogy of seeds giving way to plants. You sow a kernel of wheat and it grows a stalk of wheat. And this image helps Paul to make the point to the church at Corinth and, and, and to us today that the resurrection of believers will be a transformation. A transformation from a meager sort of splendor, a small kind of glory, a veiled sort of glory in their natural bodies to a grand glory in the bodies that they are raised with. In the same way that a stalk of wheat is more glorious than just a kernel of wheat, so also will the resurrected body of believers put to shame the glory of our natural bodies that are sown in death. Just as God gives a kind of glory to human beings, even in our fallen state, marred by sin, so also will that glory be transformed and expanded in the resurrection from the dead. That word glory, which Paul uses a few times here, and we'll probably use a lot this morning also, is a word that means splendor or majesty or beauty. 
that the resurrection of believers, of Christians from the dead, will be a beautiful thing, Paul wants us to be sure to know. And the raised bodies of believers will be splendorous to behold, a beautiful thing to look at. Understood this way, our resurrection is our glorification. For Christ to raise believers from the grave in incorruptible bodies, free from the stain of sin, as we will see, is a glorious thing. Believers will be raised in glory. But that doesn't really answer the question all too clearly, though. But gratefully, the passage of how believers will be raised will be raised in glory. But can you be more specific than that, Paul? Yes, he can. Believers will be raised not only in glory, but believers will also be raised in, as Paul says, spiritual bodies. They'll be raised in spiritual bodies. And I'm just going to tell you right now, that doesn't mean what you think it means. Verses 42 through 44, we see Paul setting up a number of comparisons between natural bodies and spiritual bodies. Uh, See the pattern with me in these verses. We see that the earthly body is sown in corruption. It's perishable. The earthly body is sown in dishonor. That is a a lack of splendor, a lack of glory, uh, marred by sin. The body is sown in weakness, an, an inability to choose and to do what is righteous apart from help in Christ. The earthly body is sown a natural body. On the flip side, the body of the Christian is raised quite differently. It's sown in corruption. It's raised imperishable, incorruptible. It is, it is sown in dishonor, a lack of splendor, and it's raised in glory, in splendorousness, in beauty, in majesty. The body is sown in weakness, but it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body, Paul says. The natural comes first, and then the spiritual. So when Paul says that believers are raised in spiritual bodies... Understand this morning, friends, he does not mean that Christians will be raised from the dead as disembodied spirits. That is not the resurrected state. That that is not how we will live forever in eternity. To, To be with God in heaven or the new heavens and new earth after we die is not to float around as disembodied spirits playing, uh, I don't know, uh, ephemeral type of harps floating on clouds around God forever. That's not how God intends us to exist. Rather, Paul here is contrasting our present perishable, dull bodies that are weakened by sin, that are sustained by natural and biological processes. You will die if you don't breathe. If you don't eat food, you will starve, right? There are natural biological processes that sustain our life, these physical bodies. And these bodies, which are sustained by biological processes, will be raised differently. They'll be raised spiritual bodies. Our future imperishable, glorious bodies will be sustained not by biological processes, but will be sustained and animated by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what Paul says. That's what Paul means when he says we are raised in a spiritual body. A body that doesn't need food to eat. Now, that doesn't mean we won't necessarily eat in heaven, but we don't need to to live. A body that doesn't need to drink water in eternity to live and to be sustained in power and strength forever. Although that doesn't mean we won't drink water in the resurrection in eternity. All that to say that the bodies that God raises us with will be sustained, carried along, strengthened by the very Holy Spirit of God. Those who have trusted Christ for salvation in this life, friend, will be raised to life in these physical bodies, but renewed and glorified 
and preserved by the very Holy Spirit of God. Let that sink in a minute. The reality of eternity is an embodied is in an embodied existence. You will have bodies in the new heavens and new earth in the resurrection. In fact, you will have the same body you have now, but glorified, renewed with strength and power and all of the vitality that the very spirit of God can give to it. You won't be floating around as a spirit without a body doing nothing forever. As God created human beings, the first man, Adam, to be an embodied soul, so also will he raise us as embodied souls for eternity. Now, if you don't like the body that you have today, just know it will be glorified. Many have asked, what will life be like after Christ raises the dead? Lots of questions. Will there be work? Will we play basketball? Will we explore the cosmos and spaceships and colonize other worlds? I certainly hope so. It sounds like a lot of fun. There are a lot of questions we could ask about what will that life be like? What will our life in resurrected bodies be like? But the short and biblical answer, without speculation, we could speculate about all those things, but the biblical answer without speculation is this. Our life after Christ raises us from the dead will be far better and even more real than this one. We're helped to understand this reality as we consider further, as Paul explains to us in the next verses, 45 through 49, that believers are raised in glory in spiritual bodies, that is, in physical bodies, animated and sustained by the Holy Spirit, and in the likeness of Christ. Our raised bodies will be in the likeness of Christ. In verses 45 through 49, we have another contrast between the first Adam, now not between seeds and stalks or natural bodies and spiritual bodies, but now a contrast between the first Adam, the first man created, set to live in the Garden of Eden, and the last Adam, who is Christ. Now, that word Adam or Adam in Hebrew means man. So it's, also, so it's a word for man, and it's also a, a, a name for a specific person in, uh, in history. And Paul is going to play on those words, Adam, and uh, the dual meaning of that word Adam as Adam and man. So the first man, Adam, is one way. The second man, Christ, or the last man, Christ, is a different way. So he says, Paul points out to us here, that we all, like the first Adam, bear his image. We bear the image of our sinful father, Adam. We are born sinners with a sinful disposition. The first moment that we are able to choose our own way over God's way, we do it. Parents of small children, you know this truth well. The image that we bear of the first Adam is one of sinfulness and mortality. The wages of sin is death that is brought on by our rebellion against God. And we suffer like our first father did, Adam did. We suffer hardship and pain and we toil hard in this world to make a living because of the brokenness that the first Adam, the first man brought into the world because of his sin and ultimately gave to us as our inheritance. Aren't you grateful? But like the last Adam, the last man, Paul says, the one who comes to remake humanity in his image, Christ. We who are in Christ by faith will also bear his image. We've already borne the image of the first man, Adam, in our sinfulness. But the very hope of the gospel is that those who are in Christ by faith 
who died for our sins and was raised from the dead, we who trust in Him will bear His image one day. What is the image of Christ? That's a good question. The image of Christ that Paul is talking about here in the context of 1 Corinthians 15 is a resurrected and glorified physical body of flesh and bone, never to die again, always to dwell in the presence of God. If we are to be raised in the likeness of Christ, this is what we can expect to be raised from the dead like in a physical body of flesh and bone, never to die again, always to dwell in the presence of God. The manner of resurrection of believers in glory will follow the pattern of Jesus' resurrection. Now, when we're raised in the likeness of Christ, that doesn't mean that we become divine. We don't become God like Christ is God. But we do take on all those aspects of his glorified, uh, uh, resurrected body. Again, just to, just to put out of our minds the notion that we might be raised as ephemeral spirits without bodies floating around forever, look again at how Christ was raised. Luke chapter 24 Verses 36 through 43, we read this. Uh, This is after Christ has been raised from uh, the dead. As the disciples were talking about these things, particularly the things that they'd seen and heard about Jesus appearing to people, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace to you. Catch this. But they were startled. The disciples were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit, thought they saw a ghost. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, Jesus says, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, doesn't mean that they didn't believe that he was raised, but they're just in such a state of joy. that's like, ah, I can't believe this. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. How was Christ raised? In a physical body of flesh and bone, animated and sustained by the very spirit of God, never to die again, always to dwell in the presence of God. He says, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have glorified and risen from the dead. And by the way, you got something to eat? That's how we know Jesus was Baptist. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But Jesus goes to length with his disciples after his resurrection to prove that he's not been raised as a ghost that he's not been raised as a spirit, that he's not just appearing in a kind of physical form, that he really has flesh and bone. Now, Jesus also appears in the room where they are by uh, uh, seemingly walking through walls or passing through a locked door. That doesn't mean that he's a ghost and he doesn't exist in a physical body. It just means that his glorified body is more real than the door that he walks through. How will believers be raised? Well, they'll be raised in glory. They'll be raised in spiritual bodies. They'll be raised in the likeness of Christ. Paul answers all these questions for us in 1 Corinthians 15. But there are some other questions that come along with this aspect of our salvation that we call glorification. The next question that uh, I'm led to ask, and maybe you are too, is when? Okay, here's how we'll be raised, but when? When will believers be raised to this kind of body? When will we we get the kind of body like Christ has when, when he was raised from the dead? The answer is this, at the glorious return of Christ. 
That's when we get those glorified bodies, when Christ returns again. Now, this was an important question for the early church. They really wanted to know, when will we be raised? The apostles taught, based on John 14, verse 3, where Jesus said, if I, he, he was speaking about having to go away. He would, he would die for sins, be resurrected, and then he would ascend to the Father. And he said to the disciples in John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. The apostles taught, based on what Christ said there, that Christ was going to return to gather the church to himself. I will come back for you, he said. But some Christians in the first decades after, uh, of church history, after Christ had been ascended to the right hand of the Father, some Christians began to worry that because Christ had not yet returned in those few decades that had passed, uh, that, that Christ had not returned even in their lifetimes, that they would miss his coming altogether. If I die before Christ comes, I'm going I'm to miss out on his return. I'm going to miss out on the resurrection. So Paul writes to clarify and to comfort the early church. He writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 15 through 7, uh, 4, 15 through 17. He says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's a nice way of saying those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, just a few verses after our key passage this morning. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. When will believers receive these glorified, resurrected bodies? When Christ comes again. Now, obviously, we are still, as a church, waiting for that. But we wait for that day with hope and with patient expectation that when Christ comes, he will be good to his promise. But you may be tempted to ask further at this point. Okay, I know how believers will be raised. I know when believers will be raised. But where will glorified believers live? I was told in Sunday school all the time that, that we, when we die, we'll live with God forever in heaven. Is that what the Bible says? Not quite. Where will believers live for eternity? The biblical answer is this. In this cosmos, made new. In this universe, renewed, restored. Physically, but spiritually carried about. Spiritually sustained. Listen to several passages of Scripture. Isaiah 65, 17, the prophet, 700 years before Christ was born. Speaking for the Lord says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isaiah 66, 22, again, the Lord says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. Second Peter, uh, Peter's second letter to the churches, Peter the apostle and friend of Jesus, says in Second Peter three thirteen, According to his promise, which promise? Well, the one from Isaiah, the two promises from Isaiah, the one promise restated twice in Isaiah. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We get all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, 1 through 4, and John in his vision of things that have happened, things that are happening, and things that are yet to take place, says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, this does not mean that there will be no ocean in the new heavens and the new earth. The sea is a picture of chaos and danger. In the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more danger. There's no more chaos. It's a place of perfect order sustained by God. He says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, the throne of God, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to tell children that if they trust in Jesus, they'll live with God forever in heaven. I just want to say, let's be a little more clear. Because sometimes that picture of living with God forever in heaven gives way to a picture of the resurrected state, of our resurrected uh, uh, existence being floating around as disembodied spirits and clouds with harps and maybe just singing songs forever. I'm not a very good singer. And even in a glorified body, I'm not sure if I'll be able to carry a tune. So an existence, an eternal existence of playing a harp and singing is kind of boring to me. Praise God, he doesn't raise us to resurrected, boring lives. He raises us to live forever in physical bodies sustained by the Holy Spirit in this heavens and earth. That word, that, that phrase, heavens and earth, comes to us from the first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And it's a, a way of speaking about all of the cosmos and all of even the spiritual realm that we see and that we don't see. And God is going to remake the heavens and the earth for his people to dwell in forever. A heavens and an earth Not altogether different from this one, but new, better, glorious, beautiful, filled with the splendor of God, sustained by the power of of the Spirit, where we will live in embodied, uh, as embodied souls forever to work and to play and to glorify God in all the cosmos. This is a wonderful reality of our salvation. So, Paul has shown us, the Word of God has shown us how we'll be raised when we'll be raised, when Christ comes again, where we will be raised to live in the new heavens and the new earth, this cosmos made new. But now finally, we need to ask this question because it's not just theology for theology's sake. It's theology for the sake of living out what it means for us. So what is this doctrine of our glorification, the, the final completion of our salvation, where we are conformed to the image of Christ perfectly and finally and forever? What does this doctrine do for us? What does it lead us? How does it lead us to respond? Well, first of all, I would posit that this doctrine stirs up hope in Christ. It stirs up in us hope in Jesus. Now, that word hope, I don't mean in the negative sense that we often use it, right? I hope I don't get sick. I hope I don't get in a car wreck on the way home. Uh, I, I hope we have ice cream for dinner. Although we may not, I probably won't. We often use that word hope uh, to express a desire for a future reality that we are not sure whether it will actually happen or not. Friends, do you know that this is not how the Bible uses the word hope? The Bible uses the word hope in the sense of confident expectation. I am looking forward with confidence that this reality will be. So this doctrine of glorification, Paul speaks about it in the already completed sense because he's so sure that it will happen. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
It's going to happen. So this doctrine of glorification, friends, should stir up hope, confident expectation for us in Christ, in the person, the substance, the source of our salvation. Because Christ has been raised from the dead, dear Christian, and because he has said he will come back for his people, the church, you can wait until he does with confident expectation, positive, confident expectation of his return. This is what hope is. It's to look forward to a specific and sure reality and to comfort your soul with it. When Peter wanted to comfort the, church, the, the churches in Asia Minor, as they endured oppression and hardship for their faith in the late 50s A.D., he reminded them of this hope. In his first letter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, speaking of our eternal existence, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Christian, our hope must not be in what politicians or what pundits or what even pastors can accomplish to make our present lives easier or more happy. We shall not look for comfort in these people or in what they produce. We shall not put our hope in them. Quite the opposite. The doctrine of glorification calls our hope to a far more glorious reality that is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the chief shepherd and victorious God who is coming again to make all things new. Our confident expectation is in Him. So raise your hopes, Christian, above the horizon of partisan politics. Place your life in the hands of the good shepherd. Live in the light of the confident expectation that he will return to consummate his kingdom. This doctrine stirs up hope in us, in Christ, the author and perfecter of our salvation. It also calls people to decision for Christ. The doctrine of glorification calls people to decision for Christ. Now, the corollary doctrine, the doctrine that goes along with the doctrine of glorification and resurrection of believers is also this this corollary of the resurrection and the judgment of those who are outside of Christ. All will be raised, some to eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth, some to judgment. And those who are raised when Christ returns to eternal life are those who are in Christ, whose faith, whose dependence in this life was placed in him for salvation. Those who are raised for eternal judgment are those who in this life did not trust him did not turn to him, did not repent of sin, did not see a need for him to save them. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Understand today, dear friend, that resurrection to eternal life is only for those who have freely followed Jesus in faith. This is not a promise that is for everyone. It is a promise that is for everyone who has trusted Jesus. For those who do not follow him, a different resurrection awaits. And we could spend a lot more time surveying all the places of Scripture that speak to this. But if you are not trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, for the renewal of your heart, you are, as Jesus says, on the wide road that leads to destruction. 
Jesus himself preached often about the realities of this road and where it ends. It ends in a place of eternal separation from God. An infinitely long existence away from the blessed presence of God and surrounded by all the righteous wrath of God for your sins. It's where the wide road leads. The doctrine of glorification reminds us also of the doctrine of God's eternal judgment for sinners who have not trusted Jesus. It's not fun to preach on hell. Doesn't get you a lot of friends. But it's true. And it would not be loving for anyone who preaches the gospel not to also warn, remind, caution those who are listening about the perils of rejecting Christ. The doctrine of glorification calls us to decision for Jesus, either to trust him or to keep walking in unrepentance and sin and selfishness apart from relationship with him. So friend, in all the love that we have for you today, if you are not yet in Christ by faith, we plead with you this morning. I plead with you this morning because heaven and hell are real places. Your decision for Christ really matters. So trust Jesus today. Turn from your sin today and receive the joy of forgiveness and the hope of glory that is in Christ today. I know we're long on time, so let's keep moving. Two more ways that this doctrine matters for us. Okay? One, it calls us to put our hope in Christ. Second, it leads us to decision for Christ. Third, it inspires resolute work for Christ's sake or hard work for the sake of Christ. It's funny how to, to hear uh, how fear of potential failure will prevent us from really trying at something hard. The possibility that I might not get an A plus will keep me from taking that class altogether. Entrepreneurs don't have this problem as much, but managing types, managerial types do, I think. Boldly changing direction or a policy initiative in an established business or company or church brings with it the possibility of losing the support of staff and potential customers and fellow church members. Entrepreneurs will charge ahead with a strong, division, uh, a strong vision. They'll just go for it. Like, I don't care if no one's with me. I'll go after it. But managing types tend to get a little bit squirrely with the possibility of big change in an organization. I don't know if I want to go that way just yet because not everybody might be on board. I don't want to lose anyone. And so it can be with a, uh, for us in our work for Christ as well. Sometimes we approach our work for Jesus in this world like managerial types who are afraid to make change, who are afraid to make bold moves. We're tentative and hesitant to share the gospel because it might upset the apple cart of our friendships. I don't want to lose my friends, so I'm just going to shut up about the gospel. I don't want to upset the apple cart there, so I'm just going to keep quiet about that. We don't confront the sin in our own lives or the lives of fellow Christians that we worship with and study the Bible with because it might cause tension in the church. I don't really want to tell John that he's walking in sin right now because I really like John. I want to keep being friends with John. And if I tell him that he's living in sin, that might really affect our friendship. And I really value my friendship with John, so I don't want to tell him that. We let our passports expire and we're slow to develop missions partnerships for our churches because we're afraid we have to get it just right the first time. I'm hesitant to, to start a missions partnership with an international missionary that we support through the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention because I want to get it right. I want to nail it the first time. I don't have any room in my crazy brain for failure. So what do I do? Nothing. 
Listen, the doctrine of our glorification by resurrection should inspire us to work hard at risky things for the cause of Christ. Why? Why should we be entrepreneurial, if we can put it that way, in our sharing of the gospel, in our making of disciples, in our pursuing of missions efforts? Why? Because Christ will bring all of it to perfect completion at the end of glory. There will be no fear of failure. There should be no fear of failure because Christ, friends, when he comes to consummate his kingdom, will make up every one of our shortcomings. There is no failure, ultimately, for the work that we do for Christ. When he comes to consummate his kingdom, he comes to consummate it perfectly. There should be no trepidation in our hearts about offending church members with biblical truth because Jesus is going to reveal all truth one day. We should share the gospel courageously and boldly go where no one has gone before with the hope of Jesus Christ because when he comes to glorify the church, he also comes to perfect his kingdom. So why do I walk around like a scared gospel manager? Later in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 through 58, Paul says this to the church, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why does this doctrine matter for us? Because it inspires resolute, hard work, even sometimes risky work, for Christ and the sake of the gospel. Why? Because when Christ returns, he's going to finish up everything that we weren't able to do for him anyway. Fourth and finally, this doctrine of glorification, the last aspect of this series of salvation, is that it provides joy as we follow Christ. The doctrine of glorification provides joy as we follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we have talked often in this series about the difficulty of following Jesus. It's hard to be a disciple. It takes us down roads of pain and hardship that God ultimately uses, we know, for our sanctification, for our, in our pursuit of holiness to conform us to the image of Jesus. But it's hard. Friend, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian today, you aren't yet. Know this. It's hard. Discipleship is costly. But listen, we're going somewhere as we follow him. It's hard to follow Jesus, but he's taking us somewhere. The destination of this journey of faith, of our following Jesus, is our final and perfect conformity to the image of Christ in all of his resurrected glory. Why follow Jesus? Because life, even after this one, is is so totally worth it. Jesus himself, the author of Hebrews says, endured the cross, despising its shame. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him, the joy of glory seated at the right hand of God. Jesus could endure the cross for our sake because he knew what was coming. Resurrection and glorification and rule and reign over all things. So he endures the cross with joy. That doesn't mean he had a smile on his face all the way. Because our resurrection and our glorification are ensured, are are determined, are confidently stated because of Christ's resurrection. So, friend, we can also have joy on the uphill and strenuous path of discipleship because Christ did. His joy was found in looking forward to his glory. And Christian, so must ours. 
Our joy must be found in looking forward to our glory when Christ returns and raises us to live forever with him. Glorification is the promise of God to finish our salvation by raising our bodies to eternal life with him in Christ. This morning, dear friend, decide to follow Jesus in faith today. Make that decision. Make that commitment. Turn from your sin. Trust him as Lord and King. Find purpose for today in the confidence of Christ's return and the life that, we'll, that we look forward to with him. Christian, do hard, risky gospel work, knowing that Christ will bring all his work through you to completion when he returns. And be joyful. And again, I say rejoice as you follow him on rocky, narrow roads because the abundant life that he gives is yours now and the abundant life that he gives will one day be forever. Even so we say, come Lord Jesus, will you pray with me?